Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from The Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Melton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News. Today we're talking about the climate strikes that happened here in Bloomington and around the world last month. We're going to be talking with five different guests in three different segments today about the role of protest and making change and what comes next. So during our first uh, 10 or 12 minutes, we're going to be talking with Eliza Dowd, who's an IU student and a climate activist, and Carter Hayes, a recent graduate from Harmony School and a climate activist. Then we're going to have uh, on the show Nathaniel Geiger, professor of communication science in the Indiana University Media School. And during the last segment of the show, we'll have Janet McCabe, director of Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute, and John Hamilton, the mayor of Bloomington. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call, and we'll take your question, and then it'll be forwarded to me here on the air. You can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can even follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you for being here, Eliza Carter. I'm going to turn to Eliza first, and Carter, you can jump in at any point, but talk a little bit about the climate strike. What did you accomplish? What did you set out to accomplish, and what was accomplished? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So... My name is Eliza Dowd. I'm an undergrad student at Indiana University. I study environmental sustainability studies and Spanish with a minor in sociology. Um, so I'm, as well as many other young people and not young people, very invested in, in climate justice. And we organized a strike along with um, the global, sorry, um, along with the Sunrise Movement and the Golden Bicycles Extinction Rebellion Group um, for September 20th, which was a beautiful, powerful day where over 500 people of Bloomington um, citizens, mostly youth um, and students, came to um, Dunn Meadow first for a rally of a diverse group of speakers talking about how um, climate change and all of its intersections affect different groups differently and, and um, pretty much affect every single issue that we're like facing today because um, it's such a vast issue. But um, then we marched um, to People's Park and marched to ultimately to City Hall to speak with Mayor Hamilton about our demands that we um, that we put together after a lot of work with our policy groups and um, to put together to see how we can make real change in Bloomington. Um, and this was a day that all over the world made tons of strides. There were, um, just in the United States alone, there were um, over 1,200 strikes. And then also um, throughout the week, it was like a week of um, a major action, the September 20th to 27th, where all around the world, there were over 7.6 million people striking. That's people walking out of their workplaces, out of their um out of their schools and into the streets saying no more business as usual usual and no fossil fuel billionaires and these corporations are not allowed to continue to profit off of our air and our water and our homes mm-hmm. yeah it was a very powerful day yeah carter yeah um i mean i think you listed out a lot of the statistics very well i mean it was a really really huge day um not just for i guess I think it was a really huge day in terms of showing us how many people are really, really invested in this movement. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it really shows us that a paradigm shift is coming and that this issue is not going to be one that's held at the back burner um, much longer. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's 
very inevitable that this movement is going to grow. And so why is it important to the two of you? What, what's the, what's the uh, motivation behind your passion for this issue? Well, um, for me, I started out as kind of when I was when I was really young. I uh, started um, with I started out researching and studying primitive skills and herbalism, and kind of looking at the world through the lens of I guess indigenous people and how they viewed the world and how they viewed nature. And through that, I was able to develop a really really deep passion and connection with nature. And um, after that, I kind of. I started gaining more appreciation for science and for the modern world and, and for technology as well, but that passion for nature carried through to that. And um, after I learned about the huge, huge implications of climate change and the huge body of research that's behind it, and it's just an undeniable fact that it's it's going to change society in a huge way. I really got behind that, and my passion for nature and for ecological diversity um, just kind of pushed me through. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's just kind of a center point in my life, and I feel like it's going to be um, until until something very drastic is done to change not only the climate, but I think society overall, because the climate and what's happening here is really an issue that pervades through a lot of social issues as well, because I think one of the biggest frustrations that we have, especially as youth, is that climate change has been, it's been pushed on us. We have not really had the biggest hand in causing it, yet we are feeling the repercussions. And it feels really, really frustrating to have an issue so huge just uh, dropped into our laps like that. Uh, without our voices or anything like that being heard of ours. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Let's ask Eliza to, to you know answer the same question. Yeah, Absolutely. that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I would say I didn't, like, it's important to say I am not a climate activist because I want to be, you know. I, I'm not passionate about this and that's why I decided to. I mean, I, yes, I am passionate about it, but, like, that's not, it's not just a hobby of mine. Like, if any person who has researched this and not just researched this, but just knows about this existential threat, this ticking time bomb that is um, plaguing our society, like how could you not, you know, mm. how could you not um, act with all that you can in order to stop this emergency that's happening? Mm-hmm. So we've had a call and the, the questioner says, and uh, you know, I know this guy, he's a, he's a, uh, more in my generation than yours. And he says he was at the rally September 20th, and he actually thought there was a low turnout of Indiana University students. Do you, do you agree with that? And you know, how do you get more students involved and to think the way that you two think? Yeah, so um, I think there were more um, – so people from all of the schools in Bloomington pretty much were there, which is so awesome and so exciting. And um, we did a really good job, like – getting getting in touch with everyone. I think there were less students than there were, uh, like, IU students than there were Bloomington younger school students. Um, but one thing... One thing that is really important to note is that there's that was like the first day and that was like the start of a movement that's growing in our town. And so since then, we've had every single Friday, Fridays for Future, and we've been um, protesting and we've been um, being loud and marching and speaking about these issues that are affecting us and affecting most marginalized communities the most um, every single Friday. And so I want to point out every single Friday. 3 p.m., Sample Gates. I'll see you there. Bring your signs. Bring your passion. And um, I'm really excited for that. So there's there um, weren't as many students at that original march, but there was still a good amount. There were um, groups like Students for New Green World there and, like, IU Democrats. Like, a lot of them were there, too, and other groups. It was not a partisan thing, but... Um, yeah, there were a lot of um, groups there, but not as a big turnout. I think there was also, that was a time when, like, a lot of people were doing tests and homework. And I, I don't know. I'm not really sure the answer to that. But um, the good thing is that we are, like, getting the students very involved. And, and this is an issue that we're very much working Like, I'm working also on the IU side of things very much, probably more than the Bloomington side of things in general, um, and a lot of work to be done. Um, real quick, I just want to say that... Um, 
for everyone out there who maybe went to the strike or is interested in climate justice, like we'll have a follow up event that's actually this Monday at um, 7 p.m. in Harmony Gym. There's going to be it's like a climate call out action follow up. So I just wanted to plug that and let you all know, because that's like a great way for everyone to continue this momentum. And their momentum has been continued. And that's a great uh Way to do that. Yeah. So, Carter, what's uh, what's what's next for you? What kind of activism are you working on? Oh, for me? That's a really good question because I've been thinking about that a lot myself. And I think what I'm really trying to do is trying to get really educated and informed about what works. Um, so if, for example, I've always really had a deep passion for science and for research, um, but I also have... Um, the feeling that you get when you're in a crowd full of just really passionate people is, you know, y- you can't really c- describe it. Um, so I think being in a direct action kind of uh, movement is, I think I'm more, yeah, I think I'm more privy to be in a direct action kind of uh, mm-hmm. kind of side of this. Well, we've only got about two and a half minutes to go. I want to ask you. Carter, about your project for Harmony, because Harmony always has a big project at yeah. the end of your school year. Can you describe what you did? Because it has to do with sustainability, right? Oh, yeah. So for my senior project, mm-hmm. I was I was doing my senior project on the sustainability in architecture, design, and construction. So I kind of broke that down into what our construction practices are doing right now that is not sustainable and um, that re- re- uh, releases a lot of greenhouse gas emissions into the air. Um, But also I was looking at the technologies and the things that we can do to curb those emissions. Um, So I got down to a few principles like designing buildings with a generally smaller size to reduce on heating and cooling costs, um, using more insulation because that's just one of the simplest ways to kind of also cut down on heating and cooling, which makes up almost 50% of energy expenditure in residential buildings. Um, but I was also, yeah, I was also just researching sustainability, and I also came to the conclusion that a lot of natural and traditional um, styles of building, such as adobe or rammed earth or straw bale, um, as antiquated as they seem, they are truly relevant to modern life still because they come with a very low embodied carbon cost, which means that it doesn't take a lot of energy to produce them in the first place, which is where a lot of the emissions come from in buildings. Right. Okay. Eliza, we've got about a minute to go. So ne- next uh, steps for you and any other points that you'd really like to get to? Yeah, just generally at its core, like this issue of climate change is an issue of people putting pr- or corporations and putting people in power, putting profits over our people and our planet and a capitalistic system that strives to extract and squeeze every bit of money out of they can out of the earth and its most marginalized communities. So directly fighting to put our people and our planet over profits and to um, this is just like a time that's a really beautiful because it's a huge transition this is in my way a happy beautiful green transition in our community that people um, are fighting for people are in the streets like demanding that their local governments make changes for the health uh, well-being and health of their communities and so like in the bloomington context that that um they're doing a, a lot of good work on sustainability, but at the same time, like when you're spending $50 million on parking garages and not um, with a $130,000 sustain, $130, sustainability budget, that's definitely an issue. And that, um, and that like we need to be de-incentivizing high carbon transportation and incentivizing and expanding our public transit to make it more accessible, expanding our routes and making it more affordable. Like we see that um, this is a, a time where Bloomington needs to not just talk the talk, but actually walk the walk as well. And we'll have the mayor here yeah. later, and he will uh, address those issues. But I want to thank both yeah. of you. It's been great. We didn't have much time, but thank you very much, Eliza Dowd and Carter Hayes, for being here with us today. We're going to be taking a short break, and we'll be right back. Thank you.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. We're talking about climate change today and, and action that's directed toward climate change. We just heard from Eliza Dowd, an IU student, and Carter Hayes, uh, who just graduated from Harmony School. And now I'm joined by Nathaniel Geiger, professor of communication science in the Indiana University Media School. Thanks for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right. So talk about your research and what, what kinds of things that you're studying. Yeah, so I'm working on um, sort of a number of things that I think are relevant. One thing I'd like to talk about today is some work related to some data that we collected a couple years ago. And so what we did was we were looking at, in April of, back in April of 2017, there were a couple climate change-related marches. There was one called the People's Climate March, and there was a second one called the March for Science, which was not explicitly climate change related, but a lot of, there's a lot of climate change related themes um, sort of embedded in that march, you know, with regard to the science behind climate change and the importance of having a government that acknowledges that science. And so one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to look at, with these two marches happening on back-to-back weekends in the same month, we wanted to look at, are these two marches actually having an effect on changing overall public opinion across, around the entire country? And so we collected data before the marches and after the marches is what's called a trend study, where we collected um, two different data sets from the public about a variety of questions related to their opinions about climate change and their perceptions of the movement and people who advocate for action on climate change. And so what we found was, was we found essentially that the, the marches did actually appear to have some effects on public opinion around this topic, although perhaps not all of the effects that these marchers, the marchers and the people organizing the marches might have hoped. Mm-hmm. And so, so first of all, what we saw in terms of the changes that we did see uh, was we did see, first of all, that after the marches, people had ne- less negative impressions of climate activists and climate advocates. So we looked at before the marches and after the marches. And after the marches, we found that people viewed climate advocates and activists as less arrogant, dictatorial, um, less aggressive which suggests that the marchers were effective in portraying themselves in a, po- in a more positive light. Mm-hmm. The second thing that we found uh, was we looked at how the marches might have influenced people who consumed media across the political spectrum. So we live in an age where some people conser- uh, consume more conservative-leaning media, other people consume more liberal-leaning media. And we expected that the conservative-leaning media might cover the marches differently from the liberal-leaning media. And so we did find some interesting differences, but the differences were actually the opposite of what we might have expected, which was, which was really interesting to see. So we, we expected that the conservative-leaning media might have covered the marches more negatively, and so people consuming that media, that the marches might not have had the same positive effects on people consuming that media as it did on the people consuming liberal-leaning media. But actually, we found the opposite effect. We found that before the marches, people consuming conservative-leaning media had more negative impressions uh, about the possibility that people could get together and work together and solve big problems than people consuming liberal-leaning media. And after the marches, that difference had gone away. The people consuming the conservative-leaning media had become less pessimistic about that. And in essence, on average, they looked more like people consuming liberal-leaning media. Mm -hmm. And so this suggests that the marches were able to sort of break through this media bubble and actually reach people who might consume a a type of media that's not always sympathetic towards the goals of these climate marches. So have you done research or did that research have um, any elements about generational differences or age differences for people? who? And how did that pan out? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in that particular research, we didn't look at we didn't look at age differences and generational differences. Um, I am starting to look at that in some of my some of my more recent work. So I've started to do sort of a uh, literature review on this. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about. I have some preliminary findings, but I'm not going to talk about them yet until they go through the peer review process mm-hmm. and whatnot. But um, yeah, sort of some of the preliminary findings uh, or some of the sorry some of the literature review that I've done suggests sort of a sort of a mixed bag on um, age differences. So there's some work suggesting that younger people really are concerned, more concerned about um, climate change and about what's going on than older people. Other research suggests that this may not be the case. It may actually be other factors. Um, Maybe younger people, some younger people are more concerned, but other younger people are not. And so I think um, more research really needs to be done to really get at that and get at, um, you know, the extent to which 
um, age is really a factor in promoting this stuff. Because certainly there are a lot of there are a lot of older people that are very concerned about climate change as well. Can Can you address at all? Uh, you know, as a professor of communication science, can you address at all the fact that there still are a pocket of climate change deniers out there, and where they might be getting their information, or how they can support? that view at this point based on all the science that's been done? Yeah. So I think, um, well, this is sort of sort of a broad question. I would say on the one hand, um, you know, one thing I would say is, is that if we look at um, people who believe um, things that are much more unlikely, um, there are people out there, you know, that believe that the earth is flat. Um, they believe that, you know, the Holocaust didn't happen. There's all these different different things that people believe. And so to some extent, I would anticipate that there will always be people that don't believe in climate change. Um, I think the question is, is why do the numbers seem so high? Uh, why does it seem like there's so many people that don't believe in climate change? And I would say a couple things to that. I would say, first of all, actually, that there's a lot of research out there, some of my research included, actually showing that we tend to overestimate uh, the percentage of people that don't believe in climate change. And so if you sort of have an estimate of, you know, how many people around you don't believe in climate change, the number might actually be a lot lower than you think. There might actually be more sort of agreement. And we have, you know, we tend to have a few loud voices in the room who we might think are speaking for more people than they really are. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. The second thing is is ultimately that you know, we do have sort of these these bubbles in society and that, you know, the people that do have doubts about climate change or whatnot, they're not they're not really in touch with information. Um, they're not they're often not aware of the fact that, you know, for example, 97 percent of scientists agree about the scientific evidence. They just don't have access to that information or they're not getting the message. And so, you know, there is sort of evidence suggesting that through having, you know, people might be consuming different media, they might be immersed in different bubbles, but through having sort of interpersonal conversations where we're able to, you know, talk with people one-on-one, -on -one, we may be able to break through some of that, some of that disconnect there. Okay. And uh, one other question I wanted to ask about, it has to do with, uh, you know, again, in, in your research on the effect that strikes have had and, and whatnot, I mean, is it, can you talk about the fact, is it better to approach things in a um, as more of a hopeful manner or in more of an uh, aggressive um, sort of negative manner you know you know what I'm trying to say I guess yeah yeah, yeah you know I think that's a really good question and um, I would say first of all that I think that um, you know a, g a good message on climate change probably needs to be complex and have several elements um, to it and so I would say that I sort of, uh, you know, would say that that dichotomy sometimes is a false dichotomy because sometimes we need to be doing, you know, more than one thing when we're communicating to people. Um, that being said, the appropriate, the appropriate strategy might depend on the time and place. I think there's a time and place for, you know, being sort of more positive and being more hopeful. And there's a time and place for um, spending more time sort of communicating on the negatives. Um, there is... There is some evidence out there that suggests that perhaps one of the best ways to get people's attention about climate change and get people engaged is actually to combine those two. Um, so to talk both about, um, you know, sort of the negative aspects of what's happening to make sure people are aware, hey, this is a serious thing, but then to combine that with um, some sort of information about the solutions, um, thinking about, you know, the po what can be better in the world and looking at actually everyday scenarios or scenarios where everyday people can get engaged and thinking about how can I play a part in this? How can I get engaged? And mm -hmm. so I think people like people like Eliza and with the Sunrise Movement and, you know, a number of other people are playing really important uh, roles in actually getting everyday people engaged. And I hope that you know, this is sort of continuing in, on into the future. Okay. We're, we're going to be heading into uh, elections. And so I, this might be a, a question that you're not prepared for. Or maybe you will be. But are there messages that you hope to hear from politicians who are going to be running for Congress, Senate, President when it comes to talking about climate change? What, 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 what would be a message that you think might be not necessarily that you just want to hear, but that might be an effective message coming out of a, a politician? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think ultimately, 
I would like to see a message where, um, first of all, where politicians are are truthful with people. Um, you know, I think there's there's some in the past, at least, there's been some sort of you know efforts by some politicians to say, oh, we shouldn't talk about this problem. We should just sort of you know not talk about it too much because it's, this is not going to be a political winner for us. And I think that um, to a large extent, the evidence actually shows, the communication evidence actually shows that when politicians acknowledge climate change and talk about it, that the people are actually more likely to vote for them. And so I think, I think that's really important. And I hope that uh, politicians continue to talk about that. Um, on a related note, I think uh, work that has shown, there's work out there that's shown that um, talking about climate change should not just be restricted to talking about the environmental impacts of climate change and the environmental impacts of the policies designed to address it, that we need to be talking about climate change as this broader issue and talking about climate change as something that's going to be affecting nearly every aspect of our life in the future. Um, it's going to be affecting our the economic aspects of our lives. It's going to be affecting people's well-being as well as the environment. And all these things are interconnected. And a lot of the policies designed to address climate change are also these sort of complex policies, which are going to have impacts across all of these things. And so, to my knowledge, the research out there has shown that when politicians talk about, um, acknowledge these sort of complex, the complexity of these issues and talk about them in a way that makes it easy for con- their constituents to understand that that's the most powerful way for them to communicate. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people will will put solutions in like winners and losers when in fact there's got to be a lot of common ground, right? Is Certainly. There, yeah. 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 And I think that um, often, um, you know, we think about these sorts of issues in terms of just it's sort of the way that our politics is is becoming. We think of everything, you know, sort of in a dichotomous light. We think of this like black and white or Republican and Democrat, you know, urban and rural. And a lot of the time, um, a lot of these things we might we often have more in common with um, people with different political opinions than than we think. And so often, what can be really helpful is trying to reach out to people who you know, might not traditionally seem to share your political values and connecting over things that you have in common, but without compromising um, the goals are. And the goals, you know, should be hopefully by politicians to actually address climate change. And so how do you do that without, how do you communicate with people who are different from you without compromising the goals? All right. I want to thank you for being here today. That's been Nathaniel Geiger, professor of communication science at Indiana University's Media School. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have Janet McCabe and John Hamilton here in the studio with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from WFIU and WTIU. And joining me in our conversation on climate change now are uh, Janet McCabe, who's the director of the Indiana University Environmental Resilience Institute, and John Hamilton, the mayor of Bloomington. And uh, I was just informed they worked together at IDEM <laughs> years ago. And John and Janet both worked there. And Janet also has a long history with the EPA. So we're going to talk about uh, these issues. So I want to turn to uh, the mayor first because, you know, you heard Eliza talking about uh, some of the demands. And I, she's handed me a copy of them. Um, you might have them in front of you, too. Maybe not. I can remind you. Of a I know. I've got, uh, them. Yeah, got them. absolutely. All right. Sure. So, um, you know, as a, as a mayor, I mean, you, you have demands that are brought to you. Um, how do you, you know, how do you react to that? And what, what can you do now that you have these things in your hands? 
Well, thanks. First, let me do say, uh, Janet, it is delightful to be with you here. Janet uh, led the air division for the state of Indiana for a few years uh, and then went on to even bigger roles, uh, as you said, with the Environmental Protection Agency for our nation, uh, trying to protect the environment in really, really important ways that had a big impact on climate change, too. And we're we're lucky to have her back in Bloomington. So it's nice to be back with you, Janet. Thanks, um, um, So, you know, the, climate change is is an existential challenge. Uh, it was a great day uh, for, for Bloomington when hundreds of people um, uh, joined uh, at IU campus and then into the city and kind of connecting those two to, to call for more action. Um, we need more of that. I, when I think about ch- climate change, there's a lot of different dimensions to it. Um, one is trying to make sure we are science-based, reality-based, results-based, uh, and all of those things can be hard sometimes when you have people denying any of those <laughs> factors. Uh, that's important to me. A second is um, the political the the political angle to all of this. Politics has made a huge difference in what we do in climate change, national, state, local. Um, uh, And I think recognizing explicitly that who is in office, who sets policies is really very important. Uh, And so elections matter and activism matters. And the third thing I'd just say, another dimension to all this is how critically important collaboration is, because Climate change uh, affects, uh, as as a professor said, um, it, it cuts across many things. Um, both uh, Eliza and Carter talked about this, too, the, the connections with so many people. And we have to be really careful and really thoughtful about how do we collaborate to attack this. So so the, the we can go through specific demands, if you want, uh, from the from the climate strike, um, many of which I agree with. And I think, again, to me, it's like. Make sure we're science-based and results-based. Make sure we, we recognize the political aspect of this and also how important collaboration is. Okay. And, Janet, um, you know, you've been involved in state government, national government. Now you're working for the university. The Re- Resilience Institute, you're trying to help cities, states – find ways that they can address this, correct? Yeah, the the whole point of IU establishing the Environmental Resilience Institute was a recognition that Hoosiers are going to be facing changes in their communities. There's just no question about it. And um, IU wanted to devote some con- some considerable resources to helping Hoosiers become more resilient. Um, we, we cannot stop climate change. We can sure make it a lot less worse than it would otherwise be, and we just have to be ready. And one of the key things that the Institute is committed to doing is making a difference on the ground, and that means connecting with actual change agents in the state. And the for my money, the biggest change agent in the state is mayors and local government officials because they are ground zero of dealing with experiencing and trying to deal with and respond to the floods that come with more extreme rainfalls, which we've been seeing increasingly, um, the hot weather, which brings more infectious disease, which brings more um, public health risk, especially to people who live in areas where they might not have air conditioning or access to um, to places where they can get cool. So how are cities going to deal with this. And I've talked to mayors around the state who are looking over their shoulder at the water coming down at them, and they can't can't stop it. But they have to be able to protect um, the public safety and property and businesses and all that sort of thing. So the Environmental Resilience Institute um, uh, recognizes that that, that this is a very complex problem, that you need, you need research so that good data can be produced, as, as the mayor was saying. You need good science and good data. We need feasible solutions. What are the things that cities and towns and local governments and people and businesses can do so that they're prepared for these issues and so that they can reduce the greenhouse gases that are making this worse? Um, and then how – this is where Nathan comes in mm-hmm. – how do we communicate about all of these things? Because if people aren't hearing about these issues – on the radio, thank you, Bob, by the way, for doing this, um, or reading it in their paper, it, you can't really expect them to understand and respond. And, of course, one one thing that gets people's attention is activism and young people going out and making a lot of noise and um, and, and being, uh, you know, politely disruptive mm-hmm. um, to get their point across. Yeah, and I, I want to ask about that further. I mean, the, from your perspective and, and yours, too, uh, Mayor Hamilton, um, how concerned, I mean, should Eliza and Carter and people in their generation be? I mean, it's a, is it a, um, the number one issue of their generation? Yes. I, 
I, I, yeah, I mean, I would agree. I mean, and that's not to dismiss other really important things that are going on in people's lives. You know, people need to have a place to live. Uh, they need to not worry about gun violence. They they need to have good schools to send their kids and enough to eat. That, and and it, not diminishing any of those concerns. But we are. We, we have developed a civilization that is designed to live in the climate that we've had for the last couple of hundred years. Our buildings, our, our infrastructure, all designed around the moderate temperatures and, and the types of rainfall that we've been getting. And that there is no question that that is changing. And that means big changes in the future. They're hard to imagine, though. You know, they're hard for people in positions of authority right now to really picture. But I think that's getting less and less true as we see more and more actual wildfires in California, the power being shut off in California to avoid fires. That happens in the United States, really? You know, mm-hmm. um, we are starting to see real impacts that are affecting people day to day. And I mean, I, I think it's the right thing to, for, for people to focus on. I'm, I'm of an age that we remember the existential threat of thermonuclear exchange on the planet that actually could, could have destroyed the planet technically could still happen, but the risk of that is dramatically changed over the last couple generations. But And this doesn't have that same pointed missiles at each other, but but this is an absolutely an ex- existential threat to the future of the of the planet. And as we often say, we don't have a planet B. We, we have to make this work. And I think it's absolutely right for young people and all of us to to identify this as a as a an existential challenge, extremely complicated. It's way more complicated than thermonuclear disarmament to, to figure out how as a whole planet state, country, community, we respond to this. And I think the voices of young and others is critically important to, to, to motivate all of us to, to move forward. Now, one of the demands uh, was, is very relevant to some things that have been happening this week. So the first one, commit to reduce citywide greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2040. Mm-hmm. You just released a citywide report on greenhouse gas emissions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Both of you talk a little bit about that. We did. Um, first of all, I want to I thank the city council and the, and the community as a whole. We developed our very first uh, sustainability action plan, which is very much much uh, centered on climate and other responses and mitigation and, and improvements. And that plan, which was adopted about a year ago, uh, uh, again, for the first time in the city, one of the first things it said was we have to measure what we're doing, measure greenhouse gases. There are new protocols. I'm proud the city is part of a, a global protocol to try to make sure when we measure our gases, you can compare us not just to Boulder or Chicago or New York, but you can compare us to Paris and Rio de Janeiro and Shanghai and other places. So we're just as as Janet said, the, commu- the communities are often trying to build this scientific base. So, so we put that out. Um, it's been released. It's online. You can check it out. Um, we've seen some good trends and some bad trends. I would say the bad trends, in summary, where we have more per capita uh, vehicle miles traveled now than 10 years ago. That's frustrating. Good news is our energy use per capita in stationary sources, buildings and such, has gone down a little bit. That's good. But here's Here's a realities check. Um, uh, Bloomington's per capita greenhouse gas profile is higher than the national average. So that's frustrating because we like to think of ourselves as not that. We should note we're lower than the state average uh, because the state's average, a lot of it driven by coal. Janet probably knows this a lot better than I do, but a lot driven by our energy sources, coal. Uh, We're lower than the state average, uh, but the state is, I think, eighth in the country in terms of state uh, greenhouse gas per capita impact. So we got a lot of work to do, and it's going to take a lot of collaboration. Mm-hmm. So, Janet, what did you see in that report? Yeah, well, I want to compliment the mayor and the city of Bloomington for being so um, uh, proactive on this. So um, there are a, a number of cities around the state that are starting to do real things, um, and Bloomington is certainly on the leading edge of that. Um, I, so many things in what the mayor said are important. You need to, you need to establish a baseline. Um, you, you need to 
you need to be okay talking about these things out loud. Establish a baseline using a protocol that's that's accepted and credible. Uh, we had 14 cities in Indiana this summer do a greenhouse gas inventory. Bloomington was one of them. Um, and I was really surprised that we had that many step forward and say, yes, I want to do this. So um, those uh, we now have greenhouse gas inventories for eight out of the 10 biggest cities in the state, covering about 35 percent of the population of, of Indiana. So um, so when people think that there's nothing going on in Indiana, well, that's not true. There, there are things going in Indiana. Um, uh, so you get your baseline, but then you have to say, okay, I'm going to do some things. And Mayor Hamilton um, was one of a few mayors that put their hands up um, uh, and said, we're still in the Paris Agreement. We know this is important. But then he and others have to actually follow through and do some things. One of the great things about doing a greenhouse gas inventory is that he can get a sense and his staff can get a sense of, well, where should we focus? And for a city that doesn't have a lot of manufacturing, most of the greenhouse gases are going to come from transportation and they're going to come from commercial and residential building energy use. Mm -hmm. So the great news there is if you put in place programs to reduce energy use in those buildings, it saves money. Um, it makes people more comfortable. It creates local jobs because you're doing work in those, in, in those very buildings. And if you work on the transportation side, um, and, and Bloomington is a beautiful place to do that because it's so walkable. Um, it's got a great transit system. Um, it's got bikes. You know, it's students who, uh, who walk places. I think they do, although I do <laughs> see a lot of them on scooters right. zooming past all <laughs> the old people like me. Um, but there are lots of opportunities there, and it's and it's. It has immediate impacts for the community. It's not just climate change. It's reducing air pollution right now today in our communities. So save money, be more comfortable, uh, reduce air pollution, um, and do this important work to reduce greenhouse gases. Yeah, and on a follow-up follow to that, I mean, the, the commitment, that the request by uh, Eliza and everybody else in, in her group was to reduce by 50 percent the emissions by 2027. So you're going to have this baseline. And what do you attack first to try to reduce those emissions? Yeah, I think um, first I just have to comment too, Janet. It must drive you crazy when you see the national government pulling back on, for example, car uh, yes. cafe fuel standards when, when yes. that is one of the ways the transportation sector gets better. And then we have the national government saying, oh, no, we don't think we need those targets anymore. Yeah, it's right, just, right. And right. threatening it, states that want to put it in. Yes, totally terrible. going the so, wrong direction. Um, uh, so the Sustainability Action Plan, basically, as Janet said, we, we embraced the, cl the Paris uh, Accord uh, climate goals, which, which set 2023 or 2025, I think, as a, a certain goal. And the Sustainability Plan and the Greenhouse Gas Inventory is designed to get us to that first, which is about a 26 percent reduction from, I think, 05 maybe or 02 to, to, to 2025. And we are... I can't. I can't promise we're on track for that, but that we are tracking it. So that's what we need to do. It's going to be some challenge. The the other part of the sustainability plan is to make sure, as a community, that we do set those goals uh, uh, for for the for the longer term goals. Uh, and uh, we, I look forward to doing that. I I think it's really important that this. The Sustainability Action Plan was developed with, with lots of community input. There were months of engagement and getting people involved. Because I, and that's what it's going to take to set these community goals. Because it, it will not do any good, in my maybe it'll do a little good. It won't do enough good for the city of Bloomington to say, we're setting this goal. We're going to do it. We, we produce at city government about 10% of the greenhouse gases in our community. Uh, most of it's by water, wa water production, water pumping and all that stuff. The vast majority of this is from other non-governmental sources. And the government can't just – we can't just tell people to do it. We have to work together and collaborate to do it. And so I'm really looking forward to the, to the next stage of the Sustainability Action Plan, which will engage the business community and the apartment owners and, the res and private residences. I mean, I'm incredibly proud that in Bloomington we have an enormous amount of solar power compared to the rest of the state. We have 3% of the population and 10% of the residential solar. That's punching three times our weight. That's good. Um, we, you know, the city itself has put the thousands of solar panels up, a, a quintupling of our solar production. So there's a lot more to do. But, again, this, in my view, this is going to take really challenging community politics led by many of the people in this room and others uh, to engage not just city of Bloomington but Monroe County. 
Monroe County needs a plan for this to work with us. Owen County, Greene County, Lawrence County, Brown County, Martin, you know, Morgan County, we all need to be working together on this. We've had uh, two questions come in, uh, one from Daniel, one from Eliza, that talk about some of the things that that the Bloomington that Bloomington can do, but also other cities in, in Indiana. Um, and they point out the the idea of you know parking garages and the convention center. You've heard this issue before, and you know how can we reduce the reliance on cars? And what is Bloomington doing to actively reduce the reliance on cars? And you know, and is there a conflict in you know building a new parking garage versus reducing the reliance on cars? So yeah, um, there's been a lot of debate about that, and there's a lot of different views about it. Um, I do think we have to we have to recognize. I mean, uh, when Jen and I were together at IDEM, we we created the first environmental justice um, uh, formal effort in the state. And transitioning through climate change, we have to pay attention to what are the lives of all of us like on the way. What's the economy like? What's the food like? What's the education system like? Housing system, all those things. And so, as mayor, I got to try to balance uh, how do we move forward in ways that that. Um, that successfully address this. Uh, you know, Bloomington has the highest per capita bus system in the state. Uh, I'm really proud of that. We, we want to invest more in it. I think that's a good thing. We have uh, a pretty low uh, individual car uh, number uh, in terms of individual car trips uh, compared to the rest of the state, but more to do. Um, I have to, as a mayor, I'm also paying attention to how do we keep jobs for people? Because if, if, if Bloomington doesn't keep a, a strong economy and vibrant economy with jobs, we don't have the resources to to respond to climate change, to build the trails, to build the to do the programs that we want to uh, to enhance that. So for me, it's a balance. One, one thing I will say, I often say, is if we have thirteen thousand parking spaces downtown today, and we do a great job with our transportation to management plan and our bus system and pass and all that, and let's say we cut it, the need for that in half in pick a year, ten year, fifteen years, that would be extraordinary be great. The very last parking places we're going to want to get rid of are structured parking because it is so efficient. It would mean we can use lots of the uh, surface parking, which is so prevalent, to, to do more development for affordable housing and for green space and other things. So I think it's a balance, and there's certainly good debate to have on that balance. But I, I feel we need to, if just take as an example, if Bloomington did a thing that said um, we are not going to have a convention center downtown, I think there's a pretty good chance a convention center will get built on the suburbs, on the highway. That, I think, would have a very bad greenhouse gas uh, impact in our whole overall community. So we have to pay attention to the science and reality and try to move forward uh, aggressively. Janet, along those same lines, I mean, you're helping develop plans or ideas for the the rest of the state to follow through on. This issue between... Um, people wanting to drive their own cars and the fact that transportation has such a huge impact on emissions. I mean, how can other communities – forget about Bloomington for a second. Yeah. You know, Bloomington's in sort of a different league when it comes to this, right? It, I mean, it, it, it's a huge issue. I mean, we are a car-based nation and unless you live in Manhattan or Boston or Washington where um, – I, when I was commuting to Washington, there were three different ways on public transportation I could get from the Baltimore airport to downtown D.C., three different – trains or buses or combination. And we're just not set up for that here. Um, and that's one reason John mentioned the clean car standards. That's one reason we need to make sure that cars keep getting cleaner. And cars are are vastly cleaner than they were 30 years ago. And it's because of technological innovation. It's and not regulation. Be- and reg- yes, regulation. <laughs> right. Regulation that, that spurred um, yeah. technological innovation. It's not because people are driving less. And in fact, efforts to try to nudge people to drive less through through public policy and regulation have been unsuccessful. So um, I, I think that this is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge in Indiana. What, one of the things that we're trying to do at the Institute is, you know, the innovation in this country, so much of it comes at the local level. It comes from people like John and his staff working with people in the community and businesses who say, hey, why don't we do it this way, right? What we want to do is capture those ideas and make sure that no city in Indiana 
has to reinvent a wheel that has already been, been invented. So we have something called the Environmental Resilience Institute Toolkit, or ERIT, that includes case studies. Indianapolis replaced its streetlights with LED light bulbs. Well, how did they do that? How much did it cost? What would they have done differently? And who can I call to find out how they did it? Um, Knox County passed an ordinance saying no invasive species. We can't sell invasive species. Well, that's that's a key thing, climate change related. So copy that. You know, take it, steal it. Um, another tool that I want to make sure that people hear about that's going to be um, released in early November is something called the Hoosier Resilience Index, which is going to be um, a tool that allows every city, county, and town in Indiana to see what the scientists are saying about the likely impacts of climate change in 2050. So how much more hot weather, how much more rain, what time of the year, flooding problems, and then work through a series of questions to find out how prepared their community is for that. How much are they thinking about these things right now? And it's, it's really, I'm really excited about it because it not only lets people sort of get a baseline of where they are, but it tells them, well, if I wanted to be a little bit more prepared for all this hot weather, I would think about doing this or this or this. And it's all based on things that other communities have done. So um, I'll look forward to uh, providing more information about that when it's actually released. All right. We are out of time. I, I wish we had time to get a, a uh post-show review from um, from our our younger guests today about what you guys said. But I guess after the show, we'll, we'll hear a little bit about that. I want to thank all five of our guests today, uh, Eliza Dowd, Carter Hayes, Nathan Geiger, Janet McCabe, and Mayor John Hamilton. Four producers, Benta Boutier, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.